Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode... This is episode 123. Three. <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen, you're in Colorado now. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have to learn how to not step in each other's toes. Even though immediately, just right before we started, we were like, oh, we'll be fine. We're not going to step in each other's toes. <laughs> <laughs> nah, that's yeah, fine. so... Uh, I'm up in uh, Colorado now. This is the first uh, separate podcast now. All right, cool. Yeah. So what have you been up to, Steven? Uh, just trying to get settled in and uh, just finished my third day of work, which is a lot of fun. Uh, we're kind of getting me up to speed on a lot of things. I'm spending about half my day out on the manufacturing floor and half my day designing new sounds and things. New sounds, so, huh? All the beeps and boops. Hopefully. Uh, all, yeah, every... I will possess all of them. They will be mine. Uh, yeah, no, so, yeah, so it's just, I I think I'm going to be trained up as a machine operator, but not to do that full time. Uh, basically, the I think the guy who is uh, running the main machines is, uh, he's going to, he's having a kid soon in uh, September. So they need someone else to run their uh, pick and place and their stencil printer and stuff. So I'm getting trained up on that. Makes sense. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll certainly talk about it in the future, but I've got some. Uh, I'm already working on my first product uh, out there, and uh, I don't know exactly. I haven't talked to my boss yet of what I can say on the podcast uh, and whatnot. But certainly, once the product is out, we can talk about it. Cool. Cool. Yeah. How about you? I've uh, been working on my blog a bit. Um, got that rolling. So I've been updating that. You know, we we joked around like I'd update it like four times and then go dark again for another year. How'd that, um, how'd that turn out? I've been posting about two to three times a week now. So, ah, congratulations. Yeah, so I'm at like eight updates or something like that since I said I was going to post more. Um, I think the main thing is I've been posting more about like the other stuff I do, not just electronics. So like the, the three-wheeler project and the Jeep. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I've certainly been seeing getting a lot of text with three-wheeler engines running and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have to post that video on YouTube. That yeah, it's running. pretty great. Yeah, um, and and you you found that there is a gear with a missing tooth. Yeah, with a missing yeah, tooth the, inside. Yeah, the thing still runs. Still runs. It just makes an awful racket. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, eventually, I guess the the teeth will all just grind themselves to dust. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unless, yeah. You, unless you replace it. Yeah. Oh, the replacement gear is like five dollars. So I I bought one. It's so weird yeah. on price of parts for that that machine. Yeah, it's a what was it, an eighty four uh, ATC one ten yeah. engine or three wheeler. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy for something that old and so sort of obscure. The parts are really cheap. Yep. Yeah. So. Unless you need like a cosmetic part, and then it's like five hundred bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. And those are the things that break and people want to uh, replace. Exactly, like fenders and stuff. Yeah. Uh, other than that, um, had an article finished, um, the key parts of Arduino. That was like the talk I gave a couple months ago at our hardware meetup. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like how to integrate the Arduino platform in your product if you've been prototyping with the Arduino. Um, so I don't think it's out yet, but it should be soon. Probably in the next, by the end of this week. Yeah, should be. That I, I bet you that's going to be a really popular one because yeah. there's there's a lot behind that 
even though it's it's fairly simple, like just having somebody's like step you, that's that's really valuable. Yeah, it, it, I basically go through like you know I break the Arduino Uno schematic apart and we go okay this does this this does this this is the something kind of funky, you know don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Do, do you ha actually? So that's a good question. Do you have anything where you're like, you don't need this, don't include it? Uh, the power mux circuit. You don't really need that. Uh, you're talking about the one where it flips, it switches in between USB like, power USB and DC onboard. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a much there's much smarter ways of doing it. How they did it is unique. I wouldn't say it's the best way though. Didn't they just do it with a P MOSFET or something like that? P MOSFET driven by a uh, op amp and a comparator setup. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It it's kind of just sniffs the line and then it switches over if it needs. Yeah, if the if the voltage on DC is high enough, DC right, power right. jack. Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's the the thing is most products don't need that because they usually have one power source. So yeah. you can just throw it out. Right, right. Yeah. It it is it is fairly unique to that kind of situation. platform. Right. Yeah, yeah, development boards have a lot of stuff on it that you don't need in your product always. So that's why it was like, you know, is your does your product even need USB? Does it need the bootloader? Stuff like that. Yeah, if it doesn't, that's that's uh that makes it really nice. Yep. Um and then I started working more on um, the Jeep, uh, Jeep prop, it's what it was called. I don't know. We've really talked about it too much on the podcast, but it's like the Jeep computer to control the relays and stuff, um, inside the Jeep, like the fans. You know, and stuff. I, I think we mentioned that a long time ago on one podcast where we were talking about, um, the old school diagrams, the old yeah, school automotive, yeah, yeah. automotive diagrams. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, how's that coming along? Pretty good. Um, I was going to use uh, thermocouple, thermocouples for like sensing all the temperatures, but I decided to not do that and go with what automotive manufacturers use, which are just an automotive uh, temperature sender, which are uh, thermistors, NTC thermistors. And I haven't really used these too much since uh, college, um, so I kind of wanted to talk about like what's the best way to read a thermistor with a microcontroller. Like to get a temperature reading, because um, they're non-linear responding devices. Right, right. Yeah, and so, it makes it even worse is the sensors I ordered are like eBay specials, and so they don't come with data sheets, so you don't know what the curve is, anyways. Ooh, ooh. Okay, so the, so you're, you're, there's a lot of curveballs that are thrown in in oh, yeah. that uh, oh, yeah. kind of kind of thing. Okay, so. Are they positive coefficient? Negative. They're negative. negative. Okay. Yeah, they're okay. NTC. And and uh, oh yeah, duh. You said uh, so. You, you said uh, well. Okay, so so they have some kind of nominal resistance, and you know what that is, right? Yeah. So what I was going to do is when I get them, I'm going to basically make my own chart. Is, yeah. Is dunk the sensor in water? Dunk my brewing thermometer electric brewing thermometer that's down that's like has a precision of 0.1 celsius put yeah. that in the water and just like slowly heat the water up and just you know do from like zero to 100 celsius over maybe 10 degree increments i don't that should be good enough 
Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know what would be kind of good? Uh, Macrofeb has that uh, vacuum oven. Uh, you could use that as a process oven and characterize the curve of oh, things. Oh, yeah. That's actually a really good idea. That's actually way yeah. better idea than what I just said. <laughs> well and, and and you know what i would do in that in the situation of of that resistor what i would make is a constant current device so you're always driving a known fixed current through it yeah. especially if you could if you can have the constant current driver inside the cab of your car so it's at a more reasonable temperature yep. such that you you know exact so such that the current won't uh vary uh you can have you know you, the cab of your car is at what 75 or whatever temperature well, depends. And drive, like, if you just get in it in houston it's like 384 celsius well, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, I've actually I saw a video once of a guy who cooked a brisket in his car. In his, he just left it on the dash and cooked it in like foil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but okay, yeah. So, so if you put a constant current through the resistor, uh, what, what's what's nice about that is you cancel out any variability. Well, not any, but most variability, mm -hmm. and you get a known fixed um, self heating such that uh whatever oh, resistance yeah, 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 from the yeah, current yeah. so you cancel all that out and then what you're left with is in the equation the only term is what changes with temperature yep it's uh, sort of it's sort of what you're doing with an rtd basically yep yeah yeah um yeah because the, the the first method that you find that people use are like the voltage divider method which is mm -hmm. you do from like you take a the you basically put the thermistor as like the bottom leg of your voltage divider and you put a analog um adc in the middle and just read the voltage change yep. um which is you just get a non-linear result basically which is fine if you have a chart um yeah you just have a lookup table and and linearize it in a in a in your micro yeah but the thing about those it's not very sensitive usually um is the downside of it yeah, it depends on what the uh, the temperature coefficient is. Yeah, and uh, and you actually gets worse is because you you brought up the self heating um, aspect of, mm -hmm. of these thermistors, and that's actually a big problem with these that setup is as the temperature changes, it's self heating changes. So right, yeah, right. Um, you know, um, have you ever heard of well, uh, probably, I, and I'm I think I'm mispronouncing this. I might not be. It's called the Wine Bridge W Wheatstone. E I N. Yeah, like the, it's the it's the four. You can put four elements in a in a kind of a diamond configuration. And if you're you looking read, at It's two voltage dividers, and you read from the centers of both. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's so, so Wheatstone. If you if you if you did that, where you had both sides or both dividers with constant current on it and then you put a differential amp in between there you can actually cancel out a whole bunch of extra noise yeah uh and you can but i mean let's be honest you're putting this in your jeep you're not caring too much about like you know reading super high precision or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah but it, but if, if you wanted to do something more fancy with it you could yeah you could do a, a wheatstone bridge or whatever it, yeah i think called. that's what they're called um yeah so there's that, and then I started looking up just like NTC thermistor ICs to see what's out there, and mm -hmm. Maxim, of course, makes something. Uh, yeah, and they probably have really great diagrams in there. Yes, and they're 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 they cost their weight in gold. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the uh, yeah, exactly. I wonder if any Maxim like engineers listen to us. Uh, if you do, please uh, write in. 
give us discounts whatever the whatever the address is <laughs> it's a uh, what podcast at macfab.com yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. um the uh, Mac six six eight two MUA. I was looking at that, and basically, it's kind of like the voltage divider method, but it's got a. Um, but how it drives the circuit, it only does like ten percent power or duty cycle on the thermistor, so it doesn't self heat. It's like point zero zero one five Celsius of self heating or something like that, um, so it's. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and it's 10-bit, and then you just spy the data over. Now, it doesn't fix the non-linear, so you still need to, like, have a lookup table. But that's the thing about all these methods. You still kind of have to have a lookup table to characterize your thermistor. It's not like a, uh, well, okay. it's not like a uh, thermocouple, which this voltage is this temperature. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, it, so, so there's actually so the above and beyond the lookup table. The, the lookup table is is fantastic, and and uh, to be honest, for like singles and one-offs and things like that, it's probably the best because it's really easy to do. You just take mm-hmm. data and and you get really accurate uh, results with it. But in a like production sense, it it kind of makes it a little bit more difficult because you just spend so much time calibrating every mm-hmm. single unit. Uh, one of the one of the nice things to do is spend a little bit more time. Take say ten thermistors and characterize each one of them into their own lookup table. Throw that into Excel and create a polynomial. Uh, averages that, them all that together. goes off of all of them. Yeah, averages all of them, and you can calculate it on the fly. And then you can get your data on any thermistor that you throw in there. And yep. it just takes a few extra clock cycles for you to run. And and to be honest, when I've done that in the past with with you, this kind of situation you really only need maybe like a third or fourth order order polynomial which you know when we're talking about temperature most of the time you don't need a uh, a sample update more than say once every few seconds yep uh so you, you your processor even a, even an arduino would have plenty of time to hammer out a bunch of power polynomials you know yep so yeah. that's yeah. a that's one option yeah so yeah i think that's a good good starting point i'll probably use this uh max 6682 chip and then uh see where that goes yeah yeah that, that, that'd be fun you know every time i've ever worked with uh any kind of temperature circuit what i've found is the amount of time you spend getting the schematic and the hardware and the layout just pales in comparison to how much time you spend calibrating the damn thing oh yeah like Getting it doesn't data take points. much to design a temperature circuit, but good God, you spend so long getting it right, you know, Correct, yeah. when you actually have the circuit. Yep. I think I think it's you're right is, is build the circuit and then pop the the thermistor inside the process oven and then just set the set it to you know, room temp and then just increment every couple degrees and let you know, let it warm up, sit let for an soak, hour yeah. and then yeah look at your reading and be like okay and build the chart out that way yeah that's that's probably the easiest and and that that oven is is uh it has generally pretty good accuracy it, it, it we originally bought that oven for uh, uh what was it 
taking care of uh, MSL levels on components, drying yeah. them out so you can pull a vacuum on and stuff. But you can use that oven also for um, advanced curing of uh, urethane and, and stuff. Yeah, epoxy, yeah, stuff like that. But it actually holds a fairly decent temperature, so I think you'd get good results with it. Yep. Now, should I pull a vacuum on it or not? I don't think I need to. No, no, don't pull a vacuum on it. Just yeah, yeah do it, do it straight because. I, you know, I don't remember my equations, but I bet you pressure has something to do with it, you know? Yeah, probably. So you probably screw everything up, but you could make, <laughs> you could make a three-dimensional like matrix polynomial that is temperature and pressure uh, dependent and pressure dependent. <laughs> yeah. The thing is where this thermistor is going to be used, it's going to be under pressure, not in a vacuum. You know, it's hooked, wanted it, to get you know, it's hooked into like, let's say, the, let's say it's hooked into the oral uh, oil oil port on the Jeep. That's, you know, anywhere from 10 PSI at idle to 60 PSI driving on the freeway. So that's true. Yeah. Uh, but it's so, in uh, but it's in like a it's in it's a, like a thermal well, right? Yeah, it's in a stainless like case. So I'm like, eh, it's probably not exposed to that pressure. So. Uh, well, yeah, I, I I doubt it would be. Also, I don't You'd think that. Uh, yeah, I don't think that those components are great with getting liquid on them. So. No. So I think you, yeah, uh, just just doing temperature, ignore pressure, yeah. or just do you know whatever, uh, how, however many pressures are at sea level. One atmosphere. One at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that joke on Futurama, where um, they have a. You know, in Futurama, they fly around in that spaceship, um, and they're fishing, and they get sucked under the water by a giant fish, and they're sitting on the seabed, and they ask the professor who built the ship, you know, because they're they're under tremendous pressure from from the sea. They're at the bottom of the, the ocean. bottom of the ocean, yeah. and they ask the professor, um, how many, how much pressure can this ship take? And they're like, well, it's a spaceship, so somewhere between one and zero atmospheres. <laughs> 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 I love the, the tongue-in-cheek science stuff in that show is just fantastic. Exactly. Yeah. It, 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 la it lands home with yeah. guys like us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder if the space shuttle went underwater, how much pressure it could take. You know, it's it's rated for impact, but probably not for continuous pressure. Hmm, maybe. I don't know. Maybe a NASA engineer can tell us how much, how well a space shuttle is a submarine. <laughs> well, of of what I've uh, what I've read and, and found out about the the spaceship, it uh, or the the original shuttle, it didn't really fly very well. Like it wasn't really meant to fly. It just kind of like fell like a brick, and it had some control surfaces, you know. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. basically like they got a ton of speed coming into the atmosphere, and they would just pull the nose up real high right before landing, just to get it a little bit of lift, you know, to basically not slam into the ground. <laughs> But I guess it's kind of hard to design something that's both a spaceship and an airplane. Well, they call that a uh, SSTO, which is... What's I can't, that? I think... What, what's SSTO stand for? As uh, I Google this... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, On your single stage to orbit. So what would you call something that's a plane, a submarine, and a spaceship? A uh, triple threat. A triple threat. Yeah. Single or stage the, to English. <laughs> single stage to anywhere. Nightmare. That's what I would call <laughs> engineering it. nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Iris says this question's on on Reddit. The uh, is it really? If a space shuttle is a good submarine. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so we have to post that in the links. But the thing is, like, uh, it's supposed to keep things in as opposed to think keeping things from getting in. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's opposite. the whole point of it. Yeah, the exact opposite. Well, the answer might be a very bad, you know, uh, submarine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Although the uh, uh, you know the astronauts they train underwater in their suits, so their their suits are rated for some kind of pressure. Yeah. Ex- external pressure, I guess. Yeah. Because I mean, you've been down to NASA. You ever seen the pool down there? Yeah, it's like huge. It's like the deepest pool in the world. Yeah, one of them. So. For sure. Unless you call like the Atlantic Ocean a pool. I don't think anyone does though. No. <laughs> Stephen just gave me Pretty that sure. look. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Steven, what are you been yeah, up to yeah. besides work? It's my turn. Uh, <laughs> well, honestly, just trying to get everything settled in here. But so, so the thing is, you know, just because I'm in a temporary place right now until I can get, uh, you know, actually purchase a home, I've got a little bit more time to, uh, you know, be on a computer and, and do some more conceptual design stuff. And I have actually been looking at the SSPS. I have that schematic pulled up, and uh, I haven't made any changes, but I've been looking at it for sure, just thinking, <laughs> thinking about what to do. Oh, no, uh, oh, no. So I've been working on that compressor IoT project a little bit, and yeah. I'm like, uh, this is this is about looking at schematics and whatever, so it's yeah. side tangent. And yeah. Yeah. I, I, put, I did some code on it last night, and I'm like, huh, why am I not, why is the microphone not working? And I'm like, wait. We might have talked about this on a previous podcast, so I started looking up like podcasts that we were talking about the compressor IoT and looking at the <laughs> show notes. Sure enough, I forgot to I I remember the op amp. I put yeah. the positive negative backwards because I didn't I didn't. Uh, that, that was like that was way early on. Yeah, it was like episode seventy or something like that. Um, and the yeah. podcast title is re, uh, "Reverse Biasing Op Amps." <laughs> <laughs> you did it again. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't do it. I just didn't remember and because I didn't make oh, the change on my schematic. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. why is this not working? I uh, gotcha. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, well, with the SSPS schematic, there's there's a lot of things that I want to keep about it because I like chunks of them and a lot of things that I want to change about it. So I'm I'm looking at changing the output architecture. Um just well really actually so be, we we would discuss this you know, a few podcasts ago, but it, it, the circuit works. Everything does what it needs to yeah. do. But now what I'm trying to do is figure out like, how the hell do we get rid of this much heat? And, <laughs> and, and more, more about it is like, how do I distribute the heat? Because it's very easy to put 700 watts of heat in one component, but it'll never survive. So how do I take 700 watts of heat and divide it between five or six or 10 components? Yep. You know, that's kind of what I'm looking at. Yeah. And in fact, if, if, if that's what, if you look at like textbook examples of like a power supply or, or or anything really, a lot of times what you'll see is something that's really simple, and it gets the job done. Mm-hmm. And then you go look at a professional version of the exact same thing, like a professional power supply, and it's just completely dotted with tons of other components. And and you know if you, if you've never seen that before, at first it comes off as really confusing because you're like, well this doesn't look anything like the textbook example. But if you start stripping off all those components, you 
it, it is the textbook example. All of that extra crap is there for a reason, and it does something that you know is above and beyond just like pen and paper make it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the point that we're at right now. We've done the textbook thing. We know it can deliver a crap load of power, and we know that it you know it can actually do that. But now we got to say like, oh God, how do we actually control it? How do we actually like keep the heat where we want it? Yeah. So that's kind of. I actually just thought of the tagline for the SSPS. Oh, what's the, that? Yeah. The super simple power supply. The entropy creator. <laughs> yeah, chaos. <laughs> yeah, the chaos. No, chaos is the exact opposite thing. Well, yeah. Well, okay, or orderly chaos. Yep. Yeah. So, so the, uh, you the, know, the, the SSPS from... will be the sole reason why we have the heat death in the universe. <laughs> I, I apologize for, for ending the human race by designing this. <laughs> Everyone. Yeah, this is a pre-apology. But no, as, as soon as I have the uh, some more information, I'll, I'll certainly pass it along to everyone, and people can take a look at it and criticize me for my bad design choices. Yeah, and we should build and build it. Well, uh, I I have it here actually. So it's in my storage facility at the moment, but I kept it at the front of the storage facility so I can go over there <laughs> and grab it. The yep. best thing is when we put it in your truck, we put it under everything. Yeah, because we knew everything could handle that. <laughs> yeah, because it was in this really, you know, sturdy steel box. And so we put it down and piled all of Steven's belongings on top of it. <laughs> hey, yeah, it can handle it. Uh, so so another thing, actually, I, I think I've talked about this a little bit in the past. Probably not much, but... Um, so I have a I have a project that uh, I, I actually purchased from a guy. Actually, you know I don't remember where he is. It's somewhere in Europe, but uh, it's called the Micro Tracer or the Mu Tracer. Mu Tracer uh, Three. Yeah, the U Tracer Three, Mu Tracer, whatever you want to call it. I think it. we talked um, about this on the long podcast. Time ago. Yeah, long time ago. So so this is a a device that a guy designed to uh, test vacuum tubes uh and it's, it's a really nifty kind of device it's a usb connected device where you you have like a gui on your computer that you can configure this thing to test basically any kind of tube out there mm-hmm. and and te- testing tubes is, is uh when you're designing it actually helps a lot to know what the characteristic of the tube is and to actually have a transfer curve and see all that stuff you know like you can do the same thing with transistors but they their design tolerance is tight enough that most of the time you don't have to worry about it, even if you're making an amplifier. But yep. with vacuum tubes, it's nice to know what the anode resistance is. It's nice to know, you know, what the what the the screen current and all that stuff is. And so this this micro tracer will actually do all of that work for you, uh, and you can it'll plot the curves on your screen. It's a really uh, kind of cool device. Uh, so if anyone wants to check it out, uh, the website is uh, dosforever.com. That's DOS, the number four, ever.com slash utracer3. And uh, what's what's cool is the guy who designed this has his lab notebook, he calls it. It's his blog, basically. And he goes through the entire design phase of everything he's ever done on this uh, thing. And he keeps adding to that blog. Uh, so there's a lot of really cool information. So if you want to see how he got down to, like, the nitty-gritty details of how he, like, uses, like, this really interesting pulse design circuit that will like instantaneously throw the device up to like 400 volts read a whole bunch of currents and then like go back to a safe mode he has like all this all this really cool stuff that he did and all of his like charts and everything regardless he has a couple of um upgrade circuits that i'm going to be implementing into it soon um 
Previously, this device was not able to measure grid current, which grid is analogous to uh, a gate on a uh, MOSFET or a base on a BJT. Um, and with you know with with a MOSFET, you don't ever what really want current flowing into the device into yep. the gate. And on a BJT, you want a very known amount of current flowing in. Uh, but on a tube, there's virtually zero current flowing in until you get to a certain point, and then a ton of current flows in. Hmm. Uh, and and to be able to plot those lines is actually very useful uh, for for a handful of applications. And until now, there really hasn't been a really good way of doing that, other than like you know throwing a resistor on there, putting it on a scope, and just kind of guessing. Uh, but but he's got an upgrade to this device now um, that that has a, a pretty cool little. Um, uh, a circuit that that basically tricks the thing into being able to read grid current. So, um, but above and beyond all of that, I kind of want to design a new um, new PCB that that's like a little daughter board attachment that has all of the different tube sockets on it. So like a seven, an eight, and a nine pin tube socket. But I want to have a whole bunch of rotary switches on this. Uh, well, nine rotary switches. There's <laughs> each pin. Each pin on the tube socket, you can just turn the rotary switch, and you can configure it such that if you say you have this tube where pin one is connected to yeah, yeah, the yeah, cathode, yeah. and this pin is, you just turn these rotary switches, and it realigns everything. So any tube you buy, you just turn the rotary switches to whatever applies to that, plug it in, and it'll test that one. Hmm. Uh, so that'd be really cool. The, yeah, and it's a it's a pretty. I mean, it's just a switch matrix basically. Yeah, with but some I'm, I'm imagining like this giant. Uh, panel, you know, machine that's like a mainframe, <laughs> and you like click, 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 like the beginning of um, uh, uh, Back, Back to the, the Future, future. modifying yeah. all the knobs, and all you see is the knobs and the meters going up, and yeah. And I love how his volume control is a variac. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. <laughs> it, actually, I should, I should, uh, I should pull the knob off of my variac that I have and put that on an amp somewhere, and such so that like you can have that monster knob on there. But uh, yeah, no. Regardless, I, I think that I think that uh, that'd be a fun little project. And these are things I can do, you know, on my computer when I don't have my soldering iron and all my stuff in yeah. front of me. Yeah. SSPS and the and the micro tracer. Go go check out that website. Uh, there's a lot of it's a lot of really cool like ways to interface like digital all the way to high voltage analog and then back to digital. Uh, really interesting blog. Yeah, and his micro tracer, I guess sec section of that stuff like has a schematic and I think my favorite thing is his schematic is just like a big brick of symbols. And then he just yeah. boxes them out. So everything's connected to everything. So it looks like spaghetti, but he has them all segmented out of like, this does this. This is the microcontroller section. And, and so it actually makes it easier to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you know what's funny? It's very similar um, to the Teensy. If you look at the Teensy schematic, uh, they just kind of like, you know, slapped everything right in front of you. And they're like, good luck. The only thing is the Teensy schematic doesn't, like block anything out mm -hmm. it's just like everything is there and the whole schematic fits very nicely into like a rectangular shape yeah. but it's all just like well good luck you know you, you go and figure out what things are and there's some notes and things but uh so yeah i like i like the way he draws his schematics they're, they're kind of yeah cool. they're really nice i guess rfo time yeah let's go on the rfo yeah so we only got one rfo this week um and it's a product that just came out um, cool. And similar to the SSPS, but very low power. 
Um, League just announced their new programmable 128 watt power supply with one millivolt, one milliamp precision. Wow. So yeah, it's pretty low, low tuning of the power that you can get with that. Well, one milliamp is not, uh, I, I, don't get me wrong. That's, that's not easy to get, but you, you see that more often than one millivolt. I'm sorry. Did I say millivolt? Milliamp is, is you see that more often. And then millivolt, one millivolt's kind of a little more rare. You see yeah. 0.1 or 0.01 millivolt more often. Yep. Um, so yeah, this, I was looking at it, the six, uh, zero to 16 volts. And, but the thing is zero to eight amps, which is, that's quite a bit of power. That's um, beefy. Yeah. That's and it's got beefy. really low noise and ripple and stuff like that. And it's got remote voltage sensing capability. So you can, you know, there's four wire. Um, and, uh, the, I think the main thing is about this is you can connect it to your computer too and do logging, which is, pretty uh, cool. yeah. um, is but, this a linear supply or is this a, a switcher? I don't know. I want to bet you it's a linear because of how low the noise is. Uh, you know, I. But the thing that the thing that kind of like sparks it as potentially a switcher in my mind is the high current. Yeah, that too. So, uh, you know. Yeah, I would agree. Eight, that. eight amps at sixteen volts would have a pretty beefy transformer on it. Yep. But maybe it does. You know. So, but it, actually, yeah. So higher current is is tends to be easier on a switcher but mm-hmm. lower noise is easier on a linear, linear. so yeah if you get if you get the two of them then you get something expensive <laughs> and this is only 260 bucks so it's not either one of those actually yeah that's not bad yeah but but 16 volt maximum is is a um that's maybe a little bit of a downfall uh, but but for again, digital how guys for, yeah for digital it's guys perfect. it doesn't matter um right that's yeah. the most you're really going to use um about 12 is probably the most you'll use for like relays and servos and stuff. Yeah. Uh, the 16 is 16 is nice. Cause automotive is like 14 ish volts, like 13.8 yeah. to 14. So that's cool. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I was going to look at this and see if that would be a good, well, I'm going to wait till Dave Jones gets one and like, you know, rips it apart. <laughs> it just shits all over. Yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> and before I buy one, um, or someone does 260 a, is, is not that bad. No, it, it, the specs beat the hell out of my current linear supply. So I yeah. like the programmability because I want to be able to program like noise in and stuff. And it sounds like I can do that with this device. That's funny. You buy a really low noise uh, supply <laughs> so that you can put noise in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to see how good your, your actual circuit rejection is and stuff. And actually, I'm I'm curious. So it says low ripple and noise, and the figure is uh, less than 350 microvolt RMS. Um, I, I wonder if that's across the entire range, all the way up to 16 at 8 amps. Or I wonder if that's, like, guaranteed 3.3 at oh, 10 milliamps. Maybe. Possibly. Because uh, well, if, it, if it holds that at 8 amps, that's awesome. I would like to see, like... Maybe something like this that also, you know, how I was talking about, like, recording, um, like, your um, sampling, your how much power it's, you're pulling. Because I've been doing a lot of low-power stuff, and I'd like to see, like, nanoamp recording. So, like, it can read nanoamps, you know, maybe a milliamp precision on the current um, 
on the uh, on the current control, sure, whatever. Because you're not going to do a current control when you're testing, you know, your new device for, or not your new device, but your uh, testing your device for low power consumption. But you want to read low power and monitor it. Like when your microcontroller comes out of um, comes out of sleep and starts processing, you know, those uh, what we we're talking about the the four four um, fourth order polynomial for your um, uh, for your temperature compensation. Yeah, yeah, your thermistor. It's like you you kind of want to know that. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a tool out there because it would be nice if you could set up kind of like a DLA so you're monitoring digital signals and then the power consumption at the same time so you can say hey when you come out of sleep mode pull this pin high and you go back in sleep mode pull it low so then you can say oh this is the how the power consumption is actually you know you know working yeah I, I don't know if there's like a specific machine that does that, but you could probably trick a handful of machines into doing that with maybe some, you know, with a computer talking to all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could do it with that and then like run all the machines at once. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, I, I uh, like I have a multimeter that does logging and I can measure that low, but it's like, yeah, it can't also measure a trigger event that I need. What? Yeah, I think you would have to set up something that once the trigger event occurs, it would have to start the logging right then. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, I haven't run into it, but I wouldn't be surprised if there if some high end stuff has that capability where it says, hey, you know, once this happens, then start doing something. I bet you it runs on LabView. Well, I mean, LabVIEW, <laughs> you can, yeah, you can make anything happen on LabView. Yeah. I'm just remembering uh, like what software. Yeah, I'm, I was just thinking to myself, like, what software have I used in the past that allows multiple machines to talk to each other? I'm like, oh, yeah, LabVIEW. And I'm like, oh, LabVIEW. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, immediately you just go to, oh. Uh, I don't want to use that and, program ever actually, again. Actually, I, I, I think we talked about this before, but I'll bring it up again. Did you have to use the NI Elvis oh, yeah. in school? Yeah. The, <laughs> the Elvis boards that basically didn't work. Like, yep. Every lab was basically just a troubleshooting lab for the NIL. <laughs> yeah, my, my speaking of that, my first, my first real big analog lab. Yeah. In school, um, I spent the first lab just basically troubleshooting jumper wires, the breadboard, <laughs> and the cable, like the BNC cables, and then I went to Fry's Electronics right after lab. I have to lap and I bought my own breadboard, my own cables and jumpers. I basically bought everything else besides the components. Didn't yeah. have a single problem ever again, ever again. Yeah, and knowing, knowing you just because I've known you for a handful of years now, you must've been livid, like absolutely furious. Oh, I was pissed. Like, <laughs> I, I, yeah, well, Cause I know like the last thing that Parker ever likes is when equipment fails, uh, just, messes with it not fails but just messes with you oh yeah like yeah you, oh that gets you into a fury <laughs> oh yeah i can't stand it i can't stand it so yeah i yeah. went and bought my and, own equipment and i'm like i can't i showed up the next lab with my own stuff and i'm like 25 dollars and i'm not going to be frustrated ever again yeah and get an a and yeah uh actually we should we should probably mention what the nil this is it, it's like an educational like board system it was it's like a, a brick about big steel brick with a uh a breadboard on top of it yep. and it could it could interface to uh some like 
higher level LabVIEW applications on your computer uh, that were meant purely for like electronics education. So it was things like, oh, you could you could do like a voltage divider and like you see it on the screen or, yep. you know, or even further, it would like inject a signal and read out like a filter or something like that. Uh, and you could you could plot a Bode plot of an actual RC filter yep. on, on there. Yeah. Although every time I ever did an, an RC filter, I, I swear to God, my TA was like, okay, if it's a low pass, he would he would let you pass the class if you could just prove that the signal was smaller at high frequencies. Like, it didn't have to actually look nice because the NIL list would never work. No. Nope. It was just like, as long as high, fil- high frequency would just be lower than low frequency. He's like, well, yeah, it's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem is just the, the those contacts are only rated for x number of things of, of insertions and they just wear out yeah the, yeah exactly they wear out and and you you would work for an hour and nothing would work and then you'd find out that like oh if i just move my pin one contact over yep. then it works then it worked and, oh my god it was horrible mine was i, I jiggled a i jiggled a uh, to get it to work we had to jiggle a jumper cable so as it's running we'd someone sitting over there just doing this wiggling the cable <laughs> <laughs> was it did you write that in your in your lab report <laughs> i told that to the ta because yeah, he was like it, he's like this under is the this required is... equipment it's like vibration yeah <laughs> 30 hertz <laughs> applied to jumper wire three <laughs> yeah uh, did, uh, in the back of our lab at A&M, they had a plastic bin that had all the resistors that you would need for that lab. But it seemed like these resistors had been used for like 500 labs. So every lead, like you would never find a resistor leg that was even slightly straight. They yeah. had like 8 million bends in them. And so sometimes, I mean, a lot of times on a breadboard, you have to have a pretty nice straight leg for it to press in properly. Yeah. But with these Holy crap! They would never go in. It yeah. was horrible. Yeah, that, that, it was the same thing. They looked like they were from the the fifties uh, resistors, <laughs> yeah. and you would have to have a like fortieth order polynomial to like write an equation for that leg. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were just completely mangled. Uh, the, 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 you know the the and the thing is like. I would I would look at the business school and every day it was like they would completely redo everything in their building. Yes, exactly. You know? And yeah. like like every year they like remodel the front entrance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm like, holy crap! I paid this much and they can't even give me a one cent resistor with straight legs. And on top of that, uh, at A and M, everyone was like super happy because we got all brand new computers one day. No, we didn't get brand new computers. We literally got the hand-me-downs from the library. The electronics and electrical computer department got the hand-me-down computers oh, from the library. It's like, oh my god, how much money did I give to these guys? One so. time we got brand new oscilloscopes and oh, all the wow. labs, and I'm like, oh, this is. And I actually got to set them up and stuff, and I'm like, this is really nice. The thing is, that's not what the lab needed. We already had really good. They were a little older, but. HP scopes that yeah I mean they were like you know 500 megahertz HP scopes that had built-in DLAs and stuff I'm like why are we getting rid of these and replacing them with basically the same thing new version Tektronic 500 megahertz Tektronics that are brand new where yeah all we need is 
brand new breadboards and resistors and cables. Oh my gosh, yeah. Everything yeah. else can be the same. Like, old scopes are fine. Like, I still use my Tektronix 464. It's a fine 100 megahertz scope. At the end of the day, they all do the same thing, especially when you're talking about, you know, the stuff you learn in college, which frankly is you would never push even an analog scope to uh, its extreme. I shouldn't say never, but, you know, like circuits 101, yeah. you're not going to push a, a scope to a, to yeah. the extreme limit. You, you might put like a one kilohertz sine wave into it, you know, yeah. something yeah. like that. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. <laughs> So if you run a lab out there, please treat your teach your students nice. Even yeah. though you know, even though they probably don't treat you nice, uh, get them good resistors. Or just tell them to put together like your IEEE department. Just put together a kit that can buy for twenty five bucks. Actually, you know what would be a really good thing is the very first lab they teach you how to uh, search on Mauser. Uh, and they give you like, you know, even though you would pay for it, they give you like a $25 credit and then you go buy all the stuff. Yeah. That yeah. would be really practical. That would be yeah, awesome. It would be really practical. Yeah. So. We should run a lab one day. Actually, that's, that, that, would, that would probably be really, really crappy. <laughs> yeah, it would be. The, uh, the, my TAs had lost all their soul. They had no twinkle yeah. in their eyes. <laughs> their eyes were just entirely black yeah like, glazed over I actually i had multiple uh tas who were like get your bachelor's degree and get out of here they're like do not go to higher level just don't i was like oh okay <laughs> well cool steven you wanna you have any more war stories or we're gonna wrap this one up <laughs> So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic that you want Stephen and I to discuss, tweet us at Macrofab or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. If you run a student lab, make sure the cables work. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.